Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Which show? I don't know anymore. I really don't because <laughs> how many shows have we done? I'm really going to have to send you rum. <laughs> at least if you're drunk, you'll have more fun. <laughs> it might not come out better, but at least it'll be enjoyable. <laughs> it's the Making Sense Show with Jeff Snyder at Eurodollar University Enterprise. The Eurodollar is all about money in the shadows, and one of those things that is in the shadows is... The Fed's actions with a repo, where they perform a repo, but now it's called the reverse repo. Anyways, it's definitely caught a lot of people's attention, especially because it reached a number, half a trillion, that was much bigger than what we saw in March of last year during an intense global financial crisis. Does that mean there's a global financial crisis coming around? What does it mean that the Fed is doing all these reverse repos? We're going to ask Jeff all about that. Jeff, have I introduced you as the head of global research at Alhambra Partners yet? Not yet, but I think you've done it enough times that most people would uh, would uh, associate me with that title. So I think that's probably good enough. Here's a great way to introduce the show. Not what I just did. I should have just read this. Over the past few weeks and even days, RRP, reverse repo, Use use has soared to nearly four hundred thirty-three billion, and now it's half a trillion, right? Four hundred eighty-two billion as of yesterday. That's the highest in a very long time, and quite a bit more than during the last few weeks of March twenty twenty. Everyone now wants to know why. Let's take a step back. Let's go back in time. Let's go back to two thousand eight. How did this whole reverse repo thing come about? Well, the reverse repo are temporary open market operations. So it's not like quantitative easing. It's sort of a program the Fed offers where banks can go to it if they want to. And in that way, it's mostly like the discount window, except it doesn't have to do with funding. You know, it's not that uh, depository institutions are short of cash and need the Federal Reserve's bank reserves or, or some other form of cash to fund their positions. It's actually the opposite, which is why we call it reverse repo. Let's take a step back. You know, repurchase agreement is where it's is done from the perspective, or it's called it's termed from the perspective of who is a uh, someone who is essentially a cash borrower. So in a repo, I'm borrowing funds from somebody else and posting collateral. So cash comes to me, collateral goes to you. That's a repo. A reverse repo, from my perspective, is the opposite. I'm the one now lending cash and receiving collateral. So a reverse repo, from again, from my perspective, with the Federal Reserve means I am lending the Federal Reserve cash and receiving collateral, which I think already people are scratching their heads saying, what the hell is the central bank doing borrowing cash from the banking system? And if you understand the purpose of the reverse repo in the Federal Reserve's monetary mechanism, it's really about trying to set a floor under interest rates. So if there's ever a situation where there are abundant reserves, for example, then you would need a some kind of standing program to quote unquote soak up those reserves so that there aren't too much reserves in the marketplace depressing interest rates down to a level below where you want them to be as a central bank. So essentially, in monetary policy terms, the reverse repo is meant to put a floor under interest rates, which is why the Fed isn't, isn't really borrowing funds from the market. It's taking them out of the marketplace so they're not available to be used in other places. And sending back collateral into the system, which 
you and I would be, I think, just generally in favor of. So that sounds like a good idea. But Jeff, why don't they just do it permanently? Why do they go through this whole reverse repo? Is it because legally it it shows up as that there's no reduction to the balance sheet? Is that Are they afraid of showing to the market that, hey, we're taking liquidity out of the system, so we're going to do it through this other other fashion? Is that what you meant yeah, by when you say it, it's... Yeah, go no, ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, part of it has to do with the historical use. I mean, again, it goes back to why do we call these things repurchase agreements? And we call them repurchase agreements because the title is not actually transfer. It's really a collateralized loan. But you got to understand, historically speaking, the Federal Reserve or a lot of central banks were never or they were never permitted to essentially finance what seems to be speculation. So in order to get around regulation where the Fed wasn't allowed to to do business with, say, securities dealers and fund their their securities dealing on a collateralized basis, they came up with a crafty way to circumvent regulation by calling it a purchase and a sale, or in other words, a sale today and a repurchase tomorrow. So it sounds like I'm we're, we're the Fed, was, which is allowed to buy and sell securities, but not to, to to borrow and lend in them or with cash. And so really, that's really what has happened. It's it's the Fed is not supposed to actually lend on collateral, and therefore, because it's a repurchase agreement the title doesn't actually transfer. So as far as the Federal Reserve's accounting goes on these reverse repo agreements, again, reverse repo from my perspective, which is I'm lending cash and, and getting collateral for my cash from the Federal Reserve, the Fed still wants to own those securities. So as a, in a reverse repo, what you'll see is nothing changes on the Fed's asset side of the books. The securities in the SOMA portfolio remain there. Nothing happens. It's as if, it's as if nothing is going on on the asset side. Instead, it all takes place on the liability side. What happens there is the Fed credit or debits the bank's reserve account and credits essentially this open market operation, which is an overnight reverse repo agreement. The article that we're using as the basis of our discussion is, is titled Reserving Observations on the Reverse Repo of Reserves posted on the 25th of May at Alhambra Investments. Jeff, you make it a point here to note that this is non-sterilized and non-standard policies back in 2008. And then you make a special note, you draw special attention to non-sterilized. Was our discussion just now an explanation of what you meant by non-sterilized? No, what that meant was the relationship between the, the systemic level of reserves and emergency programs. Before of before Lehman Brothers, the Federal had, Federal Reserve had done all sorts of auctions and things, you know, TAF auctions and overseas dollar swaps in limited quantities. Yet they sterilized those activities because they didn't want the systemic level of reserves to rise too much. Remember, in the early part of the financial crisis, the first financial crisis. Central bankers, economists, mainstream media, well, they were all more afraid of inflation than they were fallout from this monetary panic. So the Fed thinking that it needed to sterilize the level of bank reserves kept them at relative at a relative minimum. Again, that's why, you know, why did they appeal to the reverse repo in September of 2008 was one reason. This is a way to sterilize bank reserves. It's a way to soak up excess reserves so that they don't become inflationary. And again, that, that should already, you know, you should be thinking, what the hell is going on here? We have a monetary panic, the worst one since the 1930, and the Fed is more concerned about inflationary bank reserves. It just, you know, it, it, it goes to show how just 
just how off uh, monetary policy is from reality. And this is one example of it, because as you just pointed out, Emil, from our perspective, we're we don't care really about the reserves part of it. We're more interested in what you said, which is collateral coming back into the marketplace. So yes, I have from the, my perspective, it looks like I'm lending cash to the Federal Reserve, but I'm also getting something back. I'm not buying a security, but I'm getting security from the Fed in the form of pristine collateral that the Fed since 2008 has locked up in abundance. And so you don't feel that the original purpose of this program is particularly helpful or useful, but the use of the program does tell us something useful. It suggests to us that perhaps the system is constrained of collateral, that there's not enough collateral out there in the market and participants, banks are forced to go to the, to the Federal Reserve. Here, this is how you put it. But in terms of the RRP itself, these repeated overnight auctions revealed something useful. If you are a cash lender who can't find a cash borrower, borrower with the financial collateral desire that you require, then the Fed's U.S. Treasury collateralized operation markets for an emergency substitute in a collateral constrained environment. I don't think I read that very well, Jeff, but I think which you are saying the there's enough collateral if we are willing to take not great collateral, but in certain moments, we think we need the very best collateral and there's not enough of it in the system. If you're a cash lender, like a money market fund, for example, who's who's a big big part of the repo markets uh, globally, and you're you're you've got cash to lend, and you have to lend cash daily, and you know some specific or non-specific morning you wake up and try to lend your cash, but you can't find enough enough qualified borrowers for it, borrowers who have the collateral that you need or you require to do these regular repo transactions. What are you going to do with your cash? Well, you're going to, first of all, what's going to happen is you're going to offer your cash at lower and lower rates to those who do have the quality collateral. So you see repo rates drop, GC rates, and then you see lots of special rates show up in the repo market, something we talked about before. And at some point you think, well, the rates of return on repo are getting so, are getting so low because there isn't enough collateral in the marketplace. Maybe I'll, I'll consider uh, lending cash to the Federal Reserve because I know the Fed has, has the collateral that I'm looking for. And so the usage in the RRP where it's voluntary in the part of the marketplace, what that suggests is, or that indicates pretty strongly is that maybe it's not a situation where there's too many bank reserves. It's a situation where those who have cash to lend can't find enough uh, borrowers with the correct, correct collateral. And they'd prefer to go through the rigmarole with the Federal Reserve to participate in its reverse repo, which pays right now, which pays a 0% interest rate. Think about it that way. You're 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 more than willing to to park cash at the Fed at zero percent because you've got no place else to put it. Sometimes I wonder if I take too long during these episodes to get to the to the punchline to the what's actually happening right now. I, I but I like to set the context just in case people don't understand these things that we're discussing. So hopefully, dear audience, you don't mind that we go over some of the background details before we get to the meat of it, which is where we're going to right now, Jeff. The program is approaching half a trillion, and there are several 
theories out there why this might be happening. The mainstream orthodox theory is because there are too many reserves. So the system's got to soak them up. I'm going to pull yeah, up a graph. In that case, the reverse repo you... is actually performing as it's designed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, hey, this is great stuff. Good job, Fed. Okay, yeah. And so I'm going to pull up a graph that shows what? What does it show? It shows reserves rising and the TGA falling and seemingly that would suggest what jeff yeah what we're seeing is rising reserves that's quantitative easing that's permanent open market operations which are intended to increase the level of systemic reserves and you see them peaking in the middle of april but that's simply just where the uh, level of um, reverse repo started to really kick in so Here, for I, something happened it. in the middle of april and what happens is again as i said before yeah, here you can see it. The amount that goes into the reverse repo is deducted out of reserves. So it's not like the level of reserves are actually shrinking. They're just being shifted from from systemic uh, bank reserves, which is a, essentially a, ba a balance sheet remainder on the Federal Reserve's liability side, into this reverse repo account. So, so we're, yeah, we're looking at this graph. I suppose if we're not looking too closely, we're going to say reverse repo going up, reserves going up done but if we look at it more closely we see that the timing doesn't quite match up does it yeah In why the middle of april that's really the question why was it the middle of was it if you're thinking the issue is too many reserves and what was the level of, it was just shy of four trillion in uh, the middle of uh, the week of april 14th why was that the magic trigger and you can see how since then the level of of reverse repo is not commensurate with the, with the increase in the level of bank reserves. So there's more going on in the reverse repo than just simply adding more bank reserves into the system. So the system approached and hit 3.947 trillion reserves. And that is the magic number, Jeff. I don't know if you didn't get the memo, but no, we all agreed <laughs> that once we get to that point, then there's too many reserves. No, this graph is perfect, Jeff, and we're going to go into it day by day, practically, or week by week. And as you, you know, you know, the reserves are actually less or stagnant or have are unchanged during the period when the reverse repo program went parabolic. Okay, Jeff, buy me some time. I'm trying to look on this uh, report here where we should turn to next. Where do you want it? What do you want to discuss well, let's, let's next, day by March. day? Let's go March 2020. Let's talk about that for a minute because the reverse repo had a spike in usage in the second half of March of 2022, which again makes sense with uh, in regard to, I think we want to go down in the, in, the, in the article, down a little bit further. There it is. Yes. Yeah, and so there you see too many reserves, right? The level of bank reserves go, goes up parabolically and then, you know, Cash-rich uh, non-banks mostly had no place to put the funds, and so they parked them in the reverse repo, and that seems to be consistent with the idea that there are too many reserves. However, why did that spike only until last until March 31st of 2020? And then in April, as the level of bank reserves only goes higher, much, much higher, suddenly the reverse repo was no longer, no longer an option, no longer an issue. What was the difference there? And I think the difference which explains it is that in the last half of March, as in the first half of March 2020, the system was hugely collateral constrained. 
And then along comes the CARES Act at the end of March. And then Treasury Department began selling Treasury bills at a furious pace toward the end of March, but really beginning in April. So all of a sudden in April of 2020, there's enormous spike, enormous surge, an accidental surge in the level of Treasury bills available collateral for the marketplace. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to use the reverse repo anymore, even though the level of bank reserves goes way, way, way up. And now we're going to transition to your second article on this very topic, which you posted the very following day, and it's called No Reserving Interpretation About Reverse Repo Collateral Connections. And as you explained it to me, uh, the first article is more of an educational background with a hint of what you might be concluding, something about the lack of treasury bills, collateral. And here we get into it much more day by day. And so we're going to be talking about treasury bills. And in the front of the article here, you give a couple of reasons why they're very important. On the run, which we've talked about very often, and that they don't exhibit as much price risk. And yes, the just price insensitivity is a big factor too. Can you give uh, one minute just uh, to remind people again the price risk of treasury bills versus bonds and just the on-the-run nature, just to remind people why bills are so important? Well, the first thing with on-the-run is they're most liquid, which means they have a dependable marketplace behind them, which, again, in the repo market, that's all the, uh, all that uh, cash lenders really care about is if you default on, like, on the loan tomorrow, I can sell your asset at a, de a dependable predictable price and what that also entails is that there's no price risk right because if even if there's a market tomorrow something happens the price might change in overnight in between and you don't want to be stuck with an asset that's falling tremendously in value that that's that's going to fall more in value than the haircut that you have applied to protect yourself or the over collateralization you've applied to protect yourself and obviously, long-term bonds are inherently risky in terms of inflation and growth expectations. So they, they have more of a, even, even in the short run, more of a price sensitivity that repo market counterparties have to take into account. Whereas treasury bills being of such short maturity, they're really only price risk or, in, or in, during regimes where the Fed is changing short-term interest rates, which are well known ahead of time. So there's a very predictable price and sensitivity to treasury bills that doesn't always exhibit itself with treasury bonds and notes. We're going to pull up the graph we were just looking at, but now we're going to add a few dates to it. February 25th and 26th, March 18th, April 15th. Tell us a little bit why you highlighted these particular dates. Well, March March 25th, I hope, uh, is something we've talked about before, and I hope people are, have uh, paid attention to that. Simply because, you know, that was Fedwire, the big treasury sell-off, all of that stuff that happened. And since that time, especially February 25th and 26th, we saw the global bond market marketplace take a anti-reflationary turn, which is now three months at three months long. Here we are in May 20 on May 25th, talking about the same thing. We still go back to February 25th as if that has been an inflection point in the bond market's previous reflationary trading to now this anti-reflationary, or at least a reflation pause, which I think to, to me is inherently anti-reflationary too. So February 24, 25th, and 26th shows up everywhere. And guess what? It shows up in the reverse repo as the first little really sizable blip where we start to say, what's going on here? Something, something has changed. And it doesn't appear to be too many reserves because, again, too many reserves are continuing to go much, much higher. 
That's right. That's right. Reserves are climbing. Why the wiggle? Why the banana peel on the 25th and 26th? Because Fedwire was offline for a couple of hours. It's just a banana peel. But if you're not paying attention, if you're fragile, that's, you know, you're going to slip. And then what happened on March 18th? I note that on March 18th, Treasury Secretary Yellen started offering more bills to the market. And was... we also see here another blip, one that never reverse back down to zero. So it seems like, is the market saying we need even more bills? Yeah, and I think that's really the point is that before March 18th and a couple of days before, maybe the week, week and a half beforehand, that's when we saw bill yields really start to drop. Uh, they, dropped, they dropped more severely in January, but the second big decline in them happened during the early part and middle part of March. And you're right, Janet Yellen responded to that in, on the March 18th weekly schedule or bill auction schedule with by raising the regular auctions. You know, I'm not talking about the cash management bills, but the four week, the eight week and those and, and the, the, the regular maturities like those. So Yellen obviously recognized, as she said, as the Treasury Department had said in their quarterly refunding statement, that they would they would monitor conditions in the bill market because they've been cutting back. And here we see, OK, Bill yields fall, suddenly reverse repo begins to rise again in addition to what had happened in March 20, 25th and 26th. And then you point out April 14th, April 15th. Is that because that's when we saw the reverse repo program take off like a rocket ship while yeah, reserves went flat? Right, exactly. So what is it about April 14th or April 15th, that particular week, that would that would say, hey, this is where reserve, reverse repo usage is going to go parabolic. And it's really a continuation of those other things. So we connect all of these dots together. We have something happening on February 24th and 25th. We've noted it constantly, global bond yields. Even in tips markets, real yields have stopped being reflationary. Uh, we see it in treasury bills, in particular middle of March. And then I think we get to what is the coup de grace, which is March 18th suddenly nominal treasury yields they go in they join the rest of the global marketplace in anti-reflation at the same time that we've noted reverse repo usage going fly sky high and so how do we reconcile all of these things where inflationary flood of too many reserves explains what's going on in reverse repo we just can't we can't reconcile them anyway with these market behaviors this is the key graph. So anyone that's not watching this on YouTube, if you're listening to the podcast, take a look at your podcast player at the the time date, the timestamp, and check it out on YouTube at Alhambra Investments or on the Emil Kalinowski YouTube channel. And come and take a look at this graph. We're looking at long-term notes, five years and 10 years. And we can see those dates so clearly, the 25th and the 18th of March. February 25th, March 18th, and the inflection and then the reverse repo taking off just perfectly. It's all right there, signifying basically that this is, that's a good question, Jeff. Does this mean that the end of the world is imminent and guaranteed as it usually is, or does it mean what? Well, let's circle back to where we started this whole thing, talking about reverse repo and what it actually means in terms of collateral and where I said usage can indicate collateral constraint. So we're not saying that use that the, all these uh, participants who are flooding into the reverse repo program are causing this treasury market disruption that we're seeing in long-term treasury yields. 
No, what we're actually saying is that both of those things are a reaction to the same thing, which goes back to treasury bills, which is as bill yields have fallen, treasury supply has been constricted. What these things are all telling us together is a system that is collateral scarce or collateral constrained. That's what's really going on here. And that's how we can reconcile uh, not just treasury bill yield behavior, but the timing with the reverse repo and also the reverse repo timing with longer term treasury yields, all of those things together, which are anti-reflationary, a collateral constrained environment, which would make perfect sense. And that's where we get all of these dots connected is that what the system is telling us is that it's increasingly collateral scarce, which does not mean that this is the end of the world and the, uh, you know, June of 2021 is going to be a total disaster. It just means the system is in a much weaker, more fragile state because of it. And if there is some kind of spark or some kind of small thing, disruption, seemingly small, you know, the butterfly flapping its wings in, in June, that could become a much bigger thing because the system is much, much weaker given what the, what's implied here about collateral conditions across all of these big, big, big things. Systemic economic weakness. It won't be constrained to merely finance and capital markets. It'll spill over into the socio-political spheres as well. It'll affect, our, affect us personally. And that's what we're going to talk about next in part two. We're going to go to South America and talk about Chile or Chile, depending if you can pronounce it properly. Stick around. We're going to see which one of us can pronounce that country's name properly. We recently spoke to Alison Federka of Geopolitical Futures about the world and her specialty, South America. And just days, hours after our discussion, to the polls went the people of Chile to discuss and determine the future of their country. Which direction is it going to be heading? They did a a poll. What did they do, Jeff? Actually, I guess I should introduce you, Jeff Snyder, head of global research. They went to the polls for a constitutional assembly. I love it. I wish we would have a constitutional assembly, but that's just me sometimes. I'm upset with the way the United States is going sometimes. Go ahead, Jeff. What happened in Chile? Well, exactly what you said. They went to the polls for a constitutional, sort of a referendum to elect seats to a special body, which would be empowered to rewrite the Chilean constitution. And I think it is Chile, although I think most Americans, we like most Americans, we say Chile because that's what we're naturally. <laughs> so we don't want to offend any Chileans with our Americanization of their country's name, which I think is Chile rather than Chile. I've been to Chile a few times, several times. I love it. That's fantastic. I can't wait to go back. The north, the Atacama Desert, driest desert in the world it looks like mars it's unbelievable i don't it doesn't rain there it just doesn't rain and then you go south and you're in the glaciers and you're in this incredible rich green forested place and in the middle beautiful wonderful food wine country but that's not where he, what we're here to talk about we're here to talk about that you say that there's one ironclad rule if there was one when it comes to political economy which is what we discussed with Alison Federka and that is that the the that the in, there's an inverse relationship between economic expansion and political stability tell us about it and then tell us what the proximate cause was of 
this referendum? Was it COVID? No, it wasn't COVID, but you're, I think you're right. Back, I mean, that's what you, our Eurodollar University mission really is. It's, it's, it's looking at the monetary system so as to try to understand what it is that's causing various changes in the longer run rate of change in economic growth. Because as we all, as we realize, historically speaking, and there are any number of historical examples across all types of societies that show when economic growth over a prolonged period, when the rate of change goes down, the rate of political instability goes way, way up, which is, I mean, makes perfect sense. If, if the system stops working, people start rejecting that system and start looking for other ways of doing things. And what we talked about with Allison, what I really loved, you know, that was I loved about our, our conversation with Allison Federica was stability, stability, stability. That's the thing that always keeps showing up with especially emerging markets that do it right, that, that seem to be making legitimate, sustainable progress is because political and social stability go hand in hand with economic growth and economic stability. And Chile had been an example of stability for a very long period of time, you know, going back at least 30 years to the end of the Pinochet dictatorship, the Chileans have been sort of an example of how to do it right, because they haven't succumbed to the uh, periodic temptations to just, you know, start all over, you know, like a, like a blackboard, just erase everything and, and start from scratch. And what happened was the, uh, you know, given what's going on in the Chilean economy recently, which is not globally synchronized growth or the benefits of something like that. In, sept in, uh, in September or October of 2019, uh, the uh, local governments in Santiago, the, the country's capitals, decided we got to do something because we're hurting and everybody else is hurting. So we need to increase the, the subway fare price of only the rush hour trains by, I believe it was 30 pesos, which is about four cents and in, in translated into American dollar terms. And what happened was Despite that modest increase, it, it resulted in an eruption of violence and demonstrations and deaths and all sorts of, you know, political dissatisfaction boiling over into actual physical violence and, and uh, you know, uh, lots of unrest across the entire country, not just in Santiago. I remember the same thing happened in France with the yellow jacket protests. Now, I cannot pronounce French words, but, you know, the the shirt yellow that's how they they called it and people said it was uh, some tax raise uh, i think maybe it was a fuel but it wasn't and that's the point of view i mean that was the feather that broke the camel's back the cherry on top of a decade 15 years long well i guess 10 years at that point decade long weak economy and so what were the results of the election that's something that we've talked about before jeff the results were towards anything other than you know if this is capitalism then maybe we should try these guys over here who are these guys yeah it's it's an attitude that look we know we know what we've got now and if what we've got now isn't working and we know those crazy loons over in the far left or the far right we know what they're talking about and it's all craziness but you know what? At some point, there's a magical point or, the, the, you know, there's some kind of threshold there where you say, this just isn't working. Maybe we should start listening to the craziness because at least there's a chance, even if it's a modest chance, there's a chance it could end up being it could end up being uh, something positive. It could, it could get us out of our slump. And I think that's really the point here is that, you know, the 30 pesos subway subway fare hike really wasn't about a 30 basis subway here. You know, it was the Chilean economy had peaked 
coincided with most of the uh, emerging markets, including Latin America, back in 2011, 12, and really 13. And since 2013, since the end of 2013, during the dollar's destructive rise during euro dollar number three, and then again in euro dollar number four, they have not only has the Chilean growth collapsed, it has never come back. And so you start thinking about these things as, as if you're on the ground in Chile thinking maybe this is a permanent condition. Maybe this is not just a temporary slump, a sharp, severe temporary slump. Maybe this is something that's going to change and alter the long run trajectory in a, in a very bad way. And because of that, and along with other th other factors as well, you know, um, during, during Chile, Chile's period of prosperity between 1990 and 2013, the Chilean people, will, like the Chinese people, for example, they will tolerate a lot out of their government. So that's that's part of the inherent stability. You know, maybe there's a bit of corruption that you don't go, you, you don't you don't use that as a deal breaker in terms of, you know, we need to start all over again. But as soon as economic growth, that tap gets turned off, suddenly you start focusing on even small cracks in the system and say, maybe this is something we need to take a more serious look at because Chile, like a lot of countries across Latin America in particular, there's a lot of corruption involved too. And so you put all of these things together and it becomes a, it just comes a pressure cooker where all of a sudden a 30 peso hike in a rush hour trains in Santiago unleashes nationwide violence and unrest. And it's because it's really about thinking ahead to how do we get out of this mess when the people who are in charge don't even admit that there is a mess. It's, it wasn't the tea tax in Boston 200 some years ago that set off revolution in the United States. Some sparks are bigger than others. Uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor that set off United States entry. But I'm, I am certain any other little spark would have done the same. It was just the conditions were right for a revolution of some sort. That's what we're talking about. After you're, you're whittled down your energy of such a long time and you're being told everything is fine, everything is fine, a little spark comes along and it sets you off. And this graph that we're looking at here is from your article that you posted on the 21st of May at Alhambra Investments. It's called Chilling Global Wind Blowing Stronger. Chile in Chile, and you show South American emerging markets and how their GDP performed, but you also do the same one graph lower for Asian emerging markets. Jeff, before we continue, I want to also tell people that this is a two-parter. So not only that article that I just mentioned, but an essay at Real Clear Markets, which was also posted on the 21st. And that one is called, We'll Continue Hearing About a Global Recovery That Isn't Real. Jeff, the, the point here in yes. the charts is that, look, you know, there's a reason why Chile has been so stable. It has outperformed almost all of its peers. It really has had economic, legitimate economic success, at least it had up until 2013. And then what we see, and again, you can, you can understand what's going on on the ground in Chile. Since 2013, that prior economic success has been, hasn't been enough to keep Chile out of the same types of economic problems that have developed around the rest of the emerging market economy across the world. And that's where you start to think, okay, it's been eight years now, seven, eight years now, what do we have to lose? Let's start thinking seriously about doing something radically different, maybe not just different, but radically different because we're not getting any answers. The economy hasn't changed. 
And in many senses, in many sense, people maybe not even know the economy is in such bad shape because the the commentary from especially central bank officials and economists never seems to match up with what's really going on in these places, even the statistics regarding those places. So it's a very difficult situation where people are forced into options that maybe they would not, never otherwise consider. And that's really that's really the point. When you see something like Chile start to go hardcore in a different direction, that should set off warning bells in your head that here was an island of stability amidst all sorts of political, regular political chaos, a place that had done it right economically speaking, even monetarily speaking, and then all of a sudden things are going south in the South American hinterland very quickly. Let me show you a graph that I had put together for a number of countries, including Chile, that compared the last 14 years to previous global depressions. So what we're looking at right now is real GDP per capita in Chile, and it's in US dollars. And what I did is I put each of the global depressions, as I think of them, over the last 100 years, and I 150 years, and I said, okay, year zero is the year before the depression started. So 1872 for the 19th century's long depression, 1928, for the 20th century's Great Depression, 2006 for the silent depression of the 21st century. And here we, we see Chile and we can compare how it's been doing now compared to those last two uh, depressions. And what do we see? We see that the country is doing better than the Great Depression, but worse than the Long Depression. So it's in depressionary territory. And as you point out, Jeff, the it's been worse lately, you know, yeah. because for emerging markets, the 2008 to 2012 period was di completely different than advanced economies. They, they had a recession and a recovery, and then they were off to the races again. But since 2013, it's been much worse. Let me read out a couple of numbers, Jeff. I can't help myself. Okay. Real GDP per capita in U.S. dollars. So this is, you know, it's serious, as harsh and as hard and as uh, conservative an estimate I can think of here. Between 1951 and 2007, it compounded at 2% a year for Chile. Now, some people might say, you know, those 2007 to 2000, 2007 period was total credit bubble. You can't compare that. Okay. 1951 to 2000, 1.9% compounded annual growth rate in real GDP per capita. Here's the punchline, 2008 to 2020, half, 0.9%. To your point that you always bring up, we live in a nonlinear world, that's not a negative number, it's a positive number. What right. are you complaining about people in Chile? No, no, because you're used to, for 50 years, and then, as we're just saying, so you're at half that rate, and ha and that rate only looks good because the 2008 to 2012 period was good. And so now, we didn't say the word yet, I don't believe. We have communism. Communism. It's, that's where they voted. That's who they voted for in large, well, who? In the, in the assembly, a large number of communists, and then the mayor of Santiago, lovely Santiago. Yeah, the referendum was about seating 155 seats were up for grab in, the, in this constitutional assembly. 
which is empowered to make radical changes to the Constitution with a two-thirds vote in that new uh, in that Constitutional Assembly. And it was widely expected that you know the ruling party, the the party of the existing president of, of Chile, would do relatively well, at least get two thirds, or at least get one third, if not a little bit more, so that Chile wouldn't have you know there wouldn't be the the ability for other uh, uh, radical elements to radically redraw the constitutional limits. But as the actual election results came in, uh, the, the the I think it's called the Chile Vamos party fell well short of one third and in fact a, a more than a, a super majority of seats went to not just leftists but hardcore committed communists as well as an assortment of independents who are you know variously linked to those same types of of, of, of sympathies so in the in this constitutional assembly that's now going to that is empowered to redraw Chile's constitution as it see fits with a two-thirds majority will likely have a two-thirds majority influenced by what is a hardcore leftist, communist, socialist uh, uh, elements in that assembly. Punta Arenas, that's where I went on my trip to Chile and it's the southernmost uh, airport in Chile. And it is just one more short flight and you're in the south you know you're in antarctica and i found it unsettling i felt like i was at the end of the world you look around it's perfectly normal but mentally i knew i was at the end of the world and it was a little bit unsettling and uh i think what we could say here if i could make an analogy a tortured one is that end stage capitalism it's the end of capitalism as we discussed i think it was episode 15 Capitalism has had its run, as predicted by Marx. It's been 15 years now where no new wealth has been generated, and it's time to redistribute it. And people may think that we're overdoing it, but we've seen this, at least by my measure, since 2014, political upheaval in Europe, North America, South America, and it'll continue until we resolve this uh, Monetary well, that, shortage. You no, know, that's why we bring up Chile in the first place. It's 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 another one of those things where you say we are not overdoing it. We're not, you know, we're not panicking here. What we're saying is this is an important important signpost in trying to understand the progression of more extreme and radical political results because of this prolonged period of economic stagnation, silent depression, however you want to call the thing. What it is is what we said. And Chile is a perfect example. If the rate of growth is half of what it used to be, that doesn't sound like much, right? That's just 1% less. No, that's a massive, tremendous amount of, of loss growth, especially over time, especially when you consider compounding and everything else like that. It puts the system so far behind and it puts so much pressure, especially on the lowest rungs of the population. You could understand why they might say, you know, that communism crap is crazy, but they seem to have a point. They have said for years that capitalism will eventually reach its end stage. And I got to tell you, it kind of looks like it here. And not just for a couple months or even a couple years. We've been at this suffering under this lack of growth and, and the government telling us everything's fine for at least half a decade, if not completely a lot longer, going back to 2008 in some places. And so it sounds like maybe these communists do have something. I know they're crazy. I know it doesn't work in every place else has tried, but we, what do we have to lose at this point? And that's Chile is not the place where you would expect to find, at least before that, before all this, 
It's not the place where you would expect to find this type of message resonating across such a wide swath of its population. And that's why we have to pay attention to it. It's not, it doesn't mean that everything's falling apart and, the, and the, the world is ending tomorrow, but it tells us that this message is resonating. And there's a reason it's resonating in so many places that, are, that are, have had closer experience with communism and socialism than we have here. So there, it's really one of those warning signs that you have to say, okay, we really should start paying attention to this because it's not just a, a localized problem, nor is it a temporary problem. It's not a localized problem. The data for Argentina and Brazil right next door is even worse. And I wonder what Allison would say if she was here to the idea that we're just, it's not really right or left. I think the people are looking for an alternative. And right now in Brazil, they have someone that's farther on the right but it's not going very well. I bet you they're going to go hard the other direction. And it's in Argentina, it was the reverse. They went from someone who's considered technocratic and world order and on the right and pro-business back to the left that drove the country into a ditch in the early 2000s. I it's sort of like a seismograph, right? Yes. You go, it's, it's just up and down. That's the and instability. The instability goes up when the rate of change in economic growth goes down. And I think you're exactly right in Chile. I mean, if the socialists do rewrite the the, uh, the, the constitution in Chile, it's not going to solve anybody's problems. And so maybe a couple of years down the road, Chile says we're going to, well, now we got to start all over again. And so they went from a stable, increasingly prosperous society with an outlook that was hey, maybe we're not going to be just an emerging market anymore. We're going to be a developed market. That was the, that was the trajectory that they were on. And then all of a sudden, it's, it, they can't keep everything straight. And it's, 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 it's one of those things you have to pay attention to. Let us go back in time now. In part three, we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies. That's not back in time. And how they're related to ghost money and a great bullion famine of the 15th century. And Jeff, one of the fears I have is that we're not gonna follow the fourth turning timeline of generation long cycles. One of the, my worst fears is that this will be longer than a generation. And well, what did you write about in your article? About a depression that lasted in Europe for about a century, a century. Let's, what else would we rather talk about? All right, let's turn yeah. there. <laughs> Maybe we should just end the episode now and, and skip part three. Well, how would people, no, people wouldn't want to go into their weekend happy. They would want to know in the back of their mind, there's something that was as long as a century and it was an economic depression. But there, right, yeah, when we talk about this though, it does have a happy, it does have a hopeful, I don't say, I want to say happy because I don't, we don't know that yet, but it does have a hopeful ending. Yes, always. So. We'll get okay. to the doom and gloom, and then we'll get to the good stuff. Well, let's get to the good stuff right now, Jeff. Then we are going to talk about a essay that you wrote at Real Clear Markets on the 7th of May, and it was called Monetary Wrongness Has Authored a Crypto Response. Very interesting. You tie together a fascinating story about a great bullion famine in the 15th century, about a, de a century-long depression, and modern-day crypto technology we talked about it briefly and don't with... forget the euro dollar the euro dollar is in there too we've got all of these things we've got ghost money ancient Let's... ancient ghost money we've got euro dollar system and then cryptos we're gonna we're gonna get to everything we talked about it briefly 
with Nicholas Black of the Crypto and Coffee live stream TV, ladies and gentlemen. If you wanted to see Jeff and Nick get into a lot deeper discussion about crypto assets, check out his channel. It's on YouTube. He does a show every single day. It, it's He's like a duck in water. It's it's come so naturally to him. So check it out, everyone. Okay, Jeff, the Bank of France, they authored a paper a few years ago on this topic. This was the starting off point for our journey. Tell us about the paper and where it led you. Well, I had always, you know, this idea of ghost money had been around for <laughs> obviously for 600 years, but I had always called it ledger money. So when I saw this paper, it was, it was titled Ghost Money. I had never realized that it had been called ghost money and what, what that actually referred to was the same thing as we had talked you know, we, we have considered with ledger money going back uh, for a very long time. And it's really an interesting story because what the paper was about was regional variations during this, you know, century long depression of the 15th century. And I, you know, I, I, that's probably not something that most people get into in, in grade school history, but they do know something about Christopher Columbus and Spanish explorers looking for Incan cities of gold. It may not connect these things together. And the connection is, you know, Christopher Columbus looking for India not just to trade, but to get some hard money back into Europe, because Europe for a very long time had been deprived of hard money for a number of reasons, and there's still no consensus at least no strong consensus about what this great bullion famine had had uh, had, had brought it about. Um, a number of them, you know, the silver mines started to run out in Germany and France. There was a balance of payment problems in the wake of the great plague of the 14th century that, you know, with European merchants and skilled labor all herded together in towns, these that entire class was wiped out compared to Asia, which had a more dispersed population and therefore Asians were trading replaceable goods to Europe, and good and Europe only had hard currency to sell back to to give back to Asia, which developed into essentially a balance of payments problem, which lasted for you know more than a hundred years that deprived Europe of all of its hard money, which, as we know, creates any number of deflationary consequences, including depressed economic activity over a prolonged period. And then the reverse happened if we it's not in your paper but if we move forward a few centuries when the british started selling opium in china it pulled all the silver out and they fell into their own century-long depression i don't know if right. that's appropriate but they went into into uh into hell that had socioeconomic consequences that we're still dealing with when you pull out money out of a system it, it causes terrible terrible damage um, and it was funny, in, even in Europe in, in the 16th century, they had a great inflation because they were successful. European explorers were successful in exploiting the resources of the Americas, and especially the Spanish, in bringing back these ships of gold. And so bullion, they had a bullion famine in the 14th and 15th, especially the 15th century that sent explorers all over the world. And then they successfully found the, the, what they were looking for, brought it back to Europe. You had an inflationary period in the 1600s. It's but amazing Jeff, how those things all work together. It's amazing. But Jeff, would you believe that in that period, the, the Spanish economy started to count on the ships coming into port and the money that was in transit? So they knew it was on its way, and then they would act on it economically. And there's another study that tied shipwrecks 
two recessions in Spain. Yeah. So you have a ship coming in. It's got, I don't know how many millions worth, you know, just a tremendous amount of currency coming in. You're counting on it. You make deals. It didn't come in. <laughs> how are you going to pay? Recession. So absolutely fascinating uh, how, that, how that worked. Incredible. Okay. How, how do we... So, oh, we're going to be talking about money of account and what? Unit of... No, no, no. Help me, Jeff. So yeah, store value, money of account. And medium of exchange. So the, we're not going to worry about the store of value too much. It's the money of account and the medium of exchange, right? So Yeah, let's, let's remember what Henry George said in the 19th century. Impediment in the machinery of commerce or the machinery of exchange. Because what money is is a tool. It's not wealth. Money is not wealth. We need to get that out of our heads. <laughs> money is a tool for, economy, for an economy to work. So we don't have to barter. And so if there's a shortage of money, that that's a, that's a, introduces a friction in the machinery of exchange, as Henry George said, which is an impediment causing these depressions and, and all of these sorts of consequences. So in times of a great bullion famine or a great monetary shortage, what we'd expect is that economic participants, particularly the merchant classes, are going to find ways to circumvent the shortage because they want to do business. You don't want to have... You know, you don't want to be, be unable to conduct business because you don't have the right tool available. You're going to fashion a different tool so you can get the job done. And that's essentially what ghost money was. It was a way for the merchant class to be to get around this monetary shortage by sort of coming up with their own version of currency, quasi-currency. So ghost money, now we're talking about money of account. And I guess, go, and what yeah, does when that you talk mean, about money, of account, money of account? We don't care, you know. In that situation, you no longer care about store value because mm -hmm. that's not your primary you know, urgency demands that you only need money as a medium of exchange and the unit of account. The unit of account is very important because in a barter economy, how do you value, for example, somebody who brings to market produce versus somebody who makes, brings to market animals? You have to make some kind of account that exchanges and that the value of each has, has to change over time depending upon conditions. And that's what money really does. It allows us to more efficiently engage in commerce. And if there's a shortage of money, you got to find a different way of doing those things because otherwise, you know, the, the consequences are really severe. And so how did, did they find a different way of doing things? They got, a, got out a big parchment or one of those amazing tomes and they, with their quills, they would write down, Joe owes this much and Mary owes Honestly, this much yes. and then... It that was, was you know, money, several innovations, including the Venetians' uh, discovery, quote unquote, of double accounting. So there was all these bookkeeping. You know, you think the accountants you know, is the most boring uh, profession ever. Apologies to any accountants out there, but you know, here the, that was a tremendous innovation that unlocked this ghost money potential. Because yeah, merchants in a small area or even a regional area could get together and settle up based on this just simple paper money. And then what they used as, a, as the measure of account wasn't actual coins because they didn't have any. They didn't have enough actual coins in circulation. So they made up coins. They made up actually ideal coins. For example, they would make up coins that were in circulation beforehand that no longer did. You know, coins that were closer to uh, more, more pure precious metal content. Whereas, you know, during the bullion famine, as you would expect, you know, some of the precious metal coins get devalued and, and, and clipped and all sorts of other things. So they, they, these ghost money was usually ideal units of account, like a pound of sterling silver. That would become our fictional 
currency that we're going to use to price and weight everything against a fictional pound of silver that doesn't actually exist. And we'll just keep track of who owes what on a piece of paper that we all agree is our, our accounting ledger. A unified ledger that we all agree to. It sounds like Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. But before Euro we, dollars. Yes, before <laughs> we get to that... Can we make an analogy? Is there anything more to say about the 15th century? And if not, Jeff, can we then segue to the 1950s and well, the yeah, reaction? Well, well, before we get to the 50s, what we're really talking about is an age-old concept called currency elasticity. And elasticity is simply, again, money is a tool. It is not wealth. It's a tool for commerce. And when it becomes, you know, if commerce expands at a tremendous rate, it needs more money to do so. It needs more of that quantity of tool. We want the money supply to be elastic to respond efficiently to that kind of increase in demand. And Inflation. if it doesn't, it can become an impediment. So what we're really talking about here is an innovative way, but a very deeply human way of, of engineering currency elasticity when there is no other way to do it. Quasi-currency is a historical example of private systems coming up with their own monetary accounts, regardless of what governments and kings and all sorts of official money does. Short digression, Jeff, because this is something that's often asked. Inflation, what we just, what you just said, money, elasticity. Sometimes on the YouTube comment section, I'm asked, why would inflation be good if, how does the expanding economy bring about inflation? How is that good? Is what you were just saying, money is the elasticity of money? Could we tie those two concepts together? Yeah, we're not saying inflation is good. What we're saying is that when we see inflation, it's a check that things are working the way they're supposed to be working. The more Modest money... level of inflation tells us that things are working at maximum, maximum output, maximum employment. You know, the Phillips curve stuff. Okay. We don't have to buy into the Phillips curve to realize that when we see inflationary modest inflationary conditions, it's sort of a confirmation that there is enough currency elasticity, that it's at least not holding everything back. And if we don't see, if we get these prolonged disinflation or even deflationary periods, what that tells us is that there is not enough elasticity, that something is preventing the economy from operating in a way that it might generate some inflation. Now, if you go way beyond that into actual money printing, effective money printing, that's when you get into the more troubling forms of inflation. But we're not saying inflation is good. I've never, I've never said inflation is good. What I'm saying is that especially central bankers and economists have been looking for inflation to confirm that, that QE or whatever monetary policies have created enough currency elasticity in the entire system, whether it's US, Europe, or everywhere, anywhere else, such that the economy, that there's no longer a monetary impediment in the machinery of exchange, and then it can operate at full capacity. That's what it's really about. Are we operating at the best way we can possibly operate, which is what inflation would tell us? I think it's time for us to get transcripts for this show because that paragraph or two that you just said, I need to copy that and just repaste whenever I'm asked that question. Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked because, no, we're not saying inflation is good. We're saying what it, what it represents, if in modest inflation, what, what it might represent, that's good. That's positive. So, you know, there, the authorities, the academics, the people in the ivory towers know that there was a dollar shortage. 
Uh, I remember reading an article, an essay, a working paper by Carmen Reinhart, and the dollar shortage she was referring to was to the post-World War II dollar shortage. And so now it's not a bullion famine, it's a dollar famine. And one way around that was ghost money, or what we call the euro dollar system. Yeah, and it wasn't so much a shortage as it was, as we just said, lack of elasticity, right? The global economy in the post-war era was a really, it was a global boom. It was the first wave of this globalization that, that, uh, that continued on into the last half of the 20th century. And, you know, when they designed the Bretton Woods system, especially Harry Dexter White and John, Cain and Main, or John Maynard Keynes, they never, really, they never really thought ahead and thought, what if we have a global boom that really stresses the demands for money, again, as a tool, not wealth, as a tool to allow this global commerce to expand all over the place. And that's really, it wasn't that the gold bullion was short. I mean, you can argue that it wasn't distributed equally or distributed widely enough, but by and large, it was an elasticity problem. And the euro dollar system arose again in private fashion amongst the banking system who were willing and ready and able to you know, extend this quasi ghost money currency into the system because there was a commercial demand for elasticity. And this ghost money, this figment legend, this, this fictional ledger form of money filled in the currency, the elasticity role that governments were unwilling to do. And of course, that led to Triffin's paradox and Triffin's dilemma, which really wasn't a dilemma because the euro dollar had actually solved it. It's just that it had solved it outside of the government's sphere of influence. Fast forward another 50 years, 60, 70 years, and here we go again. But now it's the banks that are inelastic. They're balance sheets. Oh, my gosh. If we had time to go now through we're the to, balance what, the sheets. The Eurodollar famine, right? Yes. This actually is a famine. And it, you're right. It's, it's, now it's, it's, we're getting into the really complicated stuff because now we have ghost money for ghost money because the Euro dollars are the ghost money. And now we have to find another ghost money to get around the Euro dollar constraint. But it's still the same thing. If Euro dollar, that form of ledger money, ghost money became the dominant currency, the dominant form of elasticity. And again, you think about what a global reserve currency does. And I always think about it in terms of Robert Solomon's three pyramid, there are three pillars, which are flexibility, adjustment, and confidence which means you know, exactly what ghost money provides is that form of, of dynamic elasticity. If that starts to fail, what happens? Well, the private system again looks at it and says, well, nobody else is gonna, is gonna supply the money we need. Let's come up with another form of money, another form of ledger ghost money that will be useful in getting some uh, currency elasticity where the, uh, the normal channels won't and official channels are completely utterly unhelpful in any any way shape or form that well that's all i have jeff your final <laughs> sentence here let me read it crypto bubbles absolutely but they but that likely to be in my view a minor if ugly detail in an otherwise very familiar ultimately successful long-term story there's that optimism we were talking about yes it's tough but look at our long-term history ingenuity overcoming obstacles adapting and this the crypto maybe uh crypto assets this may be it again 
Yeah, and I think we need to be clear, though, you know, the prices have gotten way, way, way ahead of where it should be. So, yes, we would say that crypto, especially some of the, the more exotic forms, are, in, are definitely exhibiting bubble characteristics. I mean, it's obvious bubble characteristics. How dare so we're you? not saying that, you know, what crypto is properly valued. <laughs> what we're saying is that it has a long run potential and that people are piling into them today because there's this feeling that, yes, there is something there. And as we talked about with Nick on his show, Crypto and Coffee, so that was a fantastic discussion, by the way, which what we talked about was that, you know, governments and economists and mainstream people have tried to kill crypto. They tried to strangle it in the crib ever since its beginning because they don't understand it, really. They don't understand this idea of elasticity, ghost money, ledger money. And no, nor does, by the way, the people who are piling into crypto right now, they're just piling into it because that's what's moving. They don't understand and then all the dollars dying and all this other stuff. But what's really valuable in it and what shows that value is the fact that here we are in 2021, despite it, the government's best efforts of at least cajoling it and warning people and warning people off of it. These things are not only still here, they're proliferating. There is something there. And that something isn't the Fed is recklessly printing money. That's not what's driving this. What's driving this is this innate human instinct to not let a monetary tool become a prolonged or long or a period uh, impediment to regular commerce. That's what's really driving crypto underneath all of the frothy bubbleness that's going on there. People are just trying to get into it, hoping that they're not late because eventually I think people understand the monetary system isn't working, even if they don't know exactly how it's not working. They know it's not working because central banks keep doing things, even if we don't know what they're doing or why they're doing them. There's a reason why crypto continues to proliferate, even if it's not properly valued at this particular moment in time, there is value to them over the long term. That's what we're really saying here. And that value goes back in history a very long way. And there's there's actually a consistent story here that has to do with money as a tool. And looking to emerging markets, here's another reason why they're so valuable here in advanced economies. We don't quite feel it like the rest of the world does, this dollar shortage. And so I'm thinking that the emerging economies have something to tell us because they're very enthusiastic. And I think that it would be great to get into the nuances and really dive into the detail. But I know that emerging market uh, economies are using these crypto assets because there is a dollar shortage, because their currencies are so uncertain, whereas perhaps in the advanced economies, it's much more bubbly, but they sense it more viscerally than the money centers of the world. So a good thing that we discussed Chile. Jeff, that's it for me. Do you I have, have one anything more else? Thought. The good. only thought, the last thought I think we need to just, just throw out there is this idea that governments have a monopoly on money. You hear this all the time, that governments have a monopoly on money. And that's, that's never really been true. That's from modern monetary theorists. I hear that all the time from them. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's, We've had examples throughout history. We're living through one. The euro dollar, all of these examples that show that's not true. The private economy, in fact, is much better at money than any official ever has, which is why most of the time there's all of these private forms of currency and ways to increase elasticity out there, including digital currencies that I think are here to stay, even if they're woefully mispriced by people who are piling into them for the wrong reasons right now. Thank you very much, Jeff. I can't wait to do it again. Let's talk soon. Okay, take care, Emil.